Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Kerrang's Inside Track, where the world's biggest artists tell the stories behind the most influential moments in rock history. It was 25 years. It was an era. It was, uh, Warp Tour was a culture. It was something that people looked forward to, to the next year. It was a yearly thing that they could plan with their friends, get there a day early to, to hang out and party and, and stay for the show. And then the next day do whatever it, it turned into much more than just the show. It was a, it was a, uh, it was a, a moment for people. That was the voice of Krista Makes frontman of the Florida ska-punk band Less Than Jake, who played Warp Tour a total of 13 times over its 25-year run. Today, when we think about Warp Tour's legacy, we think about pop-punk, skateboarding, Vans shoes, eyeliner, swoopy haircuts, and the sweltering summer heat. But in the beginning, Warp Tour was simply a way for founder Kevin Lyman to bring together two things he knew to be great, eclectic alternative rock and the value of community. In a run that began in 1995 and ended 25 years later in 2019, the franchise would become the most successful touring alternative and punk rock festival in the history of American music. The tour became a launchpad for countless bands that otherwise would never have reached a mass audience, propelling many of those artists into the mainstream along the way. To some, it represented the triumph of the pop-punk scene, but in reality, Warp Tour's musical scope was far broader, providing a platform for artists as diverse as Blink-182, My Chemical Romance, Avenged Sevenfold, Paramore, and Black Veil Brides. Most significantly, it became the annual tour where kids discovered their new favorite band and felt part of something far bigger than themselves. To understand how Van's Warp Tour got started, we traveled to Los Angeles to speak with Kevin Lyman himself and hear how he hatched the concept for the now legendary touring festival. The concept for Warp Tour actually had been formulating for many years. Um, I was uh, worked in the clubs of Los Angeles for 12 and a half, 13 years. I, I ran up to 320 shows a year uh, for uh, Golden Voice, amongst other promoters in Los Angeles. Golden Voice, who's well known now for the company that founded Coachella, but they were pretty much the underground promoter. Uh, we were promoting all the shows of bands that kind of no one else wanted to promote at that point. You know, it was the punk rock shows, speed metal shows, those type of shows. So we were working in, in that community. And then in, by 1991, that had kind of transferred over to the alternative music scene, which kind of blindsided the whole music business when bands like Jane's Addiction, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, that scene in Los Angeles really kind of blew out at that point. And I went out on a tour called Lollapalooza. Launched in 1991, Lollapalooza was a tour created by Jane's Addiction frontman Perry Farrell, initially as a way for the band to say goodbye with a giant music-filled party alongside their heavy-hitting friends. The early lineups included bands like Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, George Clinton, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, 
Tool, Rage Against the Machine, and many, many others. The tour also embraced a number of worthy causes, marrying music to a social conscience and a wider popular culture. Kevin served as the initial stage manager for the tour, but kept his job working in the LA clubs in order to keep his ear to the ground. I never forget that we finished uh, Lollapalooza. Everyone was so excited and some people were like, I'm never working at a club again. And I went home and worked a Sepultura Napalm Death show, you know, just, you know, to remind me of where I'm from. And I went right back to work. Um, and, and around that time, I, I really started noticing like how music was, was kind of like, why were the metal kids always playing, paying more for their t-shirts? than the punk kids and why were the ticket prices more and why did the metal bands kind of like, I don't know, haze the younger bands. They, they weren't really supportive. They made them set their drum kits in front of them and then the third kit until the lead singer was standing over the barricade singing because he, there was no room for the gear on stage. But punk bands were always about community in a sense. They were, we'll share, we got a pizza, you can have a couple slices. We got a case of beer, you guys can have a six pack. You know, we'll share. And the community said, but I was, I was looking at the fans going, they're the same kid. They were the same person. And maybe, you know, I started seeing all this and everyone was working in the clubs at that point. And the clubs were very crowded. And a lot of these younger bands were getting signed to record deals. So they weren't nurturing a community. Immediately they had agents and managers. They weren't working on door deals. They were working, you know, there was just a, a weird sense of disjointed community. Then in his thirties, Kevin decided to start promoting events that combined sports and music. One time, he paid the Red Hot Chili Peppers a whopping $250 to play on top of a skate ramp. Another time, he had Pennywise, Social Distortion, and The Offspring play on a mountain while people snowboarded. But by 1995, he started to feel like it might be time to get a little bit more serious. By 95, I was kind of thinking that maybe it was time to go get that real job. I always say that to anyone I meet, and anyone in this business, uh, that real job. And they look and I go, yeah, the one that your parents thought you should have gotten, maybe with some insurance and maybe some, some, you know, and everyone that ever is in this business goes, oh, I remember those discussions with my parents at some point. And in 1995, we were expecting our first child. Me and my wife were gonna have our first daughter. And I was really thinking that maybe I need to, this lifestyle just of hustle, you know, maybe I need to get some stability where there's health insurance, things like that. And uh, I thought, I was in the snow in March. We had just finished a board aid show. We were also doing things like boarding for breast cancer. And, but board, there was a board aid show and we convinced Perry Farrell to do Mountain Song, which was one of my favorite songs. And uh, coming down the mountain, he hadn't done a, he was doing Porno for Pyros by then. He did a Jane song. That was the first time he played a Jane song since he had left Jane's addiction. And it was just this moment of like total clarity in a sense, like coming down the mountain, there was a board across, there's all this stuff. And earlier in the day, I had heard someone mention a thing called the X Games. And that the, there was gonna be a thing formed called the X Games. And I said, in my mind, I'm like thinking, and all of a sudden this clarity, I'll just never forget, it was like sparkly, the snow, snowballs, kids running all over the stage, we're throwing them off the stage. And I go, wow, this lifestyle that we've been leading on the West Coast maybe, maybe some of the places in Florida and some of the coasts maybe did some events like this, this thing could become a, like a national thing. This, people are going to recognize the convergence of sports and music at that point. And I was like, you know what? If we don't do it ourselves, we're gonna be working for someone else. Coca-Cola or some brand's gonna hire us to come in and do an event, but maybe I'll do it one last time and do it my own way and go across the country with a skate ramp and some friends before I maybe got that real job. We were sitting in the snow. I told my friend Greg Teal, who we remain friends to this day, I think we should do a tour where we bring skateboarding and music. 
And so Kevin put together the first ever Warp Tour. The Warp Tour later became known primarily as a punk rock festival. The first lineup that came together was actually quite a bit more diverse than that, including Sublime, Deftones, L7, No Doubt, Quicksand, and Sick of It All. Despite their musical differences, Kevin felt like the acts he'd booked shared a set of sensibilities, and he worked tirelessly to make them feel like they were part of a growing family. Really what I was trying to do was bring a community together when I look back at it at that point. A community that needed to come together because it took a community to, to drive a scene and grow a scene. I wanted to bring the skateboard world that were friends and, and people in it that I was working and kind of bridge that gap. Uh, I had friends at Billabong and I had friends at some of those companies and, and uh, it came together very quickly. We were on the road. We, this was March when we came up with this and we were on the road by August 1st that first year. And it was kind of like took any band that was willing to come with us at that point, but I knew them in the club. So, you know, people like No Doubt and Sublime were, were easy and Quicksand. Uh, Scott McGee got it, the idea and the concept. So they came out on the road and I wanted to do everything completely different. I wanted to see if I could do something that I felt like was wrong in this business. And I still some days feel it's wrong. That concept of shuffling the schedule each day came from me being on Lollapalooza in 1991 and watching one of my favorite performers, Henry Rollins, playing to empty seats at 1.20 every afternoon because that was his set time, 1.20 to 1.50 every afternoon. You know, anyone who's seen Henry Rollins perform knows that energy. And I, I kept just standing and watching him going, and some days we'd have people in front because it was a general admission show, but most of them were in those amphitheaters. So he played doing a lot of empty seats. And I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if Henry could play right before Jane's Addiction some night? he would absolutely blow people away or mix it up. So that's where that concept came, that I said, I'm gonna mix this lineup every day and try to give bands different exposure because I'd been worked around so many tours where if you're the opening act, you kind of settle into a routine. If you're the middle act, if you're, you know, if you're playing on a, you kind of settle into a routine. I want them to mix up routine because I, I didn't like routine. I like a little bit of chaos. So I think that's what gravitated me to like punk and metal shows because it was controlled chaos. Sometimes it wasn't controlled, but kind of learn how to control that chaos and, and bottle it up. Then I was like, well, I hated lights because on Lollapalooza, we had a bunch of club lighting people that were all of a sudden had these giant lighting rigs and it seemed like we were constantly working on the lights because it was over. And I said, you know what, we're gonna take it in the daylight. And the concept of taking it into the daylight, one was so we could move quicker. We could move and didn't have to deal with lights all day long. And two was punk rock was very violent at that point. There was a whole violent element to it. But those lyrics to me were so important that I wanted people to hear those lyrics without threat of being beat up by the gangs in LA. There was a lot of punk rock gangs. So I started thinking that 90% of the problems were caused by 10% of the people under cover of darkness. So if I took this music out into the sunshine, a bunch of those problems probably will go away and people can actually listen to this music that I thought was so important. That first year was, I had Orange 9mm, which was like a vegan Buddhist band traveling with Sublime, which were like, little rascal pirates, like living on a bus together. Um, I had L7 with no use for a name. And now Chris Shiflett is in Foo Fighters. And what he said, he says, it was a reverse Me Too moment for him. He said those girls were pretty rough on him because he was a cute little boy. Uh, and they took no mercy on him. <laughs> I think they picked on him on purpose. But some of the stories from that first year, we, we really didn't know and I'd been doing shows forever, but I, that was like my first coordinated tour. And we somehow made it around the country. I don't know how. 
Around that same time, a young Los Angeles photographer named Lisa Johnson, who was already working for Kerrang! as well as a few other publications, was busy finding her way to the front of every show with her camera in order to document the vibrant scene around her. I met Kevin Lyman because he uh, worked in a lot of the clubs and I would go to a lot of the shows and I would always, uh, I was like the kid who would sneak their camera in and get pushed up against the barricade. And it was before they even had like rules about like bringing your camera in. So you could just bring it in. So I, I had like a little lunchbox and I would bring in my camera, get myself up against the barricade, stick my, um, you know, my lunchbox down and stand on top of it with my little stilettos and get my camera out and, and I'd be right up there up against the barricade. Uh, but anyway, I'd go to those shows, and um, sometimes it would probably be uh, a little more dangerous than I was aware of. And uh, occasionally, uh, some some crew person would like you know pluck me up uh, onto the stage to get some good photos. And y- that was usually probably Kevin. <laughs> so, which I didn't know at the time, but I've since learned that that they were very concerned for my safety. Lisa's constant presence on the scene made her the perfect candidate to become Warp Tour's official photographer. Her photos were later anthologized in the book Misfit Summer Camp, 20 Years on the Road with the Vans Warp Tour, which was published in 2015. As the Vans Warp Tour began to grow both in size and prominence, its reputation spread amongst fans and artists alike. Krista Makes of Less Than Jake remembers the first time he heard about the festival in 1997. So how we heard about the Warp Tour is kind of interesting. Um, our then-manager um, had called me. This would have been the spring of 97. And she called around March or April and said, hey, there's this tour going out. It's a traveling festival, and it's called Warp Tour. And, of course, this is before uh, our little gadgets where we can, you know, do a little Google search and figure out what this thing is. I'm like, well, what is that? And she's like, well, bad religion and suicide machines and seven seconds and real big fish. All these bands are going to be out there. Lagwagon. We're like, we're in. And, uh, we had never taken a tour bus before. Uh, we had been a band for about five and a half years at this point, And the, the drives are so long. We get this tour bus, we leave Florida. And the first show was up in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. It was at a minor league baseball field. I think it was July 97. And we were introduced to hordes of punk fans that were into the surf and skate and punk rock culture. It was just this built-in audience for us that was amazing. And uh, we were out there for three weeks, and the tour was the most invaluable tool that we ever had as a band. That When we went back to those markets five, six, seven months later, our audience doubled and in some instances tripled in those places. It was incredible. And we pretty much have, have done the tour every other summer since. Another band to cut their teeth on the Warp Tour were Canadian pop-punk outfit Sum 41, who managed to participate in an impressive total of 10 tours throughout the 25 that took place. In 2001, during the summer of their breakout release All Killer No Filler, the band saw their crowds grow with every stop on the tour, as singer and guitarist Derek Wibley recalls. The first time we did the Warp Tour, we did just the local stage in Toronto. And then I think the next year we did Toronto and Montreal. And then we did, we were like on the Tiki Tent, you know, which is, I think we did two weeks, um, which was a, a Toronto, Montreal, and then a bit of the Northeast in the States. And we were just on a small little stage driving in a van. And then 2001, All Killer came out. And that was the year we got the whole Warp Tour. And that was also the same summer that Fat Lip Single started taking off. And, you know, the Warp Tour was a great place for us to be this band that was starting to take off because we're playing in front of so many different people 
every single day um, who were hearing about us on the radio or on MTV but didn't know much about us. And, you know, the Warp Tour was a great way to be in, in every city, you know, every major city across the country. One of the biggest appeals of Warp Tour was the fact that even if kids couldn't get into their local club to see their favorite band, fans of any age could get a cheap ticket and spend all day having fun. Here's Chris of Less Than Jake again. Most of the kids that were out there loved punk rock, loved ska, and the tour was really kind of focused on that music at that point because that was kind of what was breaking and what was really popular. You know, to be honest, it was kind of like this built-in audience and it was a it was a great bang for your buck. I mean, where you know could you drop your teenager off at eleven in the morning and pick them up at eight at night for twenty five dollars? It was a cheap ticket with an amazing value, and it was it was a perfect vehicle for us to to get in front of of like minded fans that like this kind of music. And I would talk to kids though; it was funny, and I'd say, "Hey, next time we roll through, you know, whatever city we were in, Minneapolis, you know, you should come see us. We're going to be back here in a couple months." And some of them would say, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm too young or not allowed to go to shows. Uh, this is my one show a year. And it was kind of like one-stop shopping for them. They had every, every band that they love in one place. And back then, they used to have uh, motocross out there with ramps. They'd be jumping and, and doing their, their tricks and, and their, their things. And they had uh, vert ramps and skaters out there. It was, it was a whole thing. It was, it was incredible to watch it uh, unfold. While Warp Tour included wider cultural elements that added to its overall appeal, it became an essential outlet for a certain generation of bands who received little or no support from the mainstream media. It also helped create a sense of camaraderie amongst artists with seemingly little in common. I feel really sorry for the future generations that do not get to experience Warp Tour because the legacy that it's left behind is the last generation or two of amazing music that maybe would not have survived had it not been for Warp Tour to give them a platform to develop outside of the typical format, which, you know, back when it started, it was like MTV. If you were lucky, if you were like an alternative band, you were lucky if you got on 120 minutes, you know? You were lucky if Beavis and Butthead made fun of you, you know? And so for these artists to be able to have this platform and move on and to make these lasting connections and networking with these artists that maybe they would not normally have shared a stage with, it's like pretty cool. So you got, you got to look at some of these, you know, a band that you would think, oh, a band like Floggy Molly, like they're out at Warped Tour, it's like, they're not a punk band, but you know what? They kind of are. So they just get out there and they do it and they don't care. So look at their crowds now. You know, they just played with social distortion. Well, you know, that would never have happened if they hadn't have been part of Warp Tour. They were just in an, playing at Molly Malone's, like in a club the size of this room we're in, you know. And they go out on Warp Tour and they develop these fans who now, 20 years later, are still devoted fans. And then... I don't think you would have that if you didn't have something like Warp Tour, where, you know, you have bands like Fall Out Boy and My Chemical Romance. They were on their way to making things happen, and they got to really, like, cut their teeth and be there and interact with other artists, and they all get to study each other and learn. It's like, it's literally like taking a master class in how to rock. With the Warp Tour traveling party consisting of upward of a thousand people on occasion, the tour often found itself transformed into a surreal punk rock summer camp, 
with a few particularly wild stories to match. Krista Makes remembers one of those moments. There's so many memories. I mean, just the ridiculousness of, uh, I'll just give you one story. We were in West Palm Beach. This would have been 99 Warp Tour. It was actually Pompano Beach, Florida. And they had a uh, no foul language, no no swearing ordinance. And they had the seven words you're not allowed to say. And we, we can all kind of figure those out. And uh, <laughs> we got wind of this the day before. So when we got to Pompano that morning, we had hired two male strippers to dress as police officers. And these two guys are flanking the side of the stage with their arms crossed. And I get out there first song. I'm like, can you believe this crap? You know, they got to put police officers on the stage because they know of our reputation. They know that we, we might we might swear and they're going to arrest us. Who thinks that's a bunch of bull crap? And the crowd's going nuts. They're booing these guys like no one's business. And we go through the first song and these guys don't break character at all. They're in their cop uniforms, arms crossed. First song ends and, and I say something to the effect of, all right, let's kick up the insanity. I want to see you guys go nuts. And we launch into the second song and all of a sudden, the strippers start start putting on their show. They these are breakaway cop uniforms, so they break them off, and they're in thong, pink thongs. These two guys, and they're gyrating and dancing. I mean, the audience went completely ballistic. It was insane. If you go to my Instagram uh, page at less than Chris D. And, and scroll back a couple of months, there's a picture of me dressed like Richard Simmons next to, to one of the strippers in his banana hammock. It's it's classic. When no effects would play, it was always a ridiculously good time. Um, you know, they have that, uh, that album, you know, So Long and Thanks for All the Shoes. And ever since then, like, it, people's goal to get their shoes up on the stage so if you were standing anywhere where like a shoe could possibly hit you, for sure it would. And then there was a point where people thought it was fun to throw their wallets up on stage. So sometimes they'd throw their wallets and then, um, you know, somebody would put money back in the wallet and return it to them. So the, it, just silly stuff like that would happen all the time. In a hilarious situation that seems like it only could happen on Warp Tour, both Derek and Chris have stories involving a fan's prosthetic leg. Neither of the pair can confirm whether it was the same leg. First, here's Derek. I remember we were doing a signing on the Warp Tour, and there was a it was like a chain link fence, and you know a bunch of kids had come up to us and asked for autographs, and we were on the other side, so we we're trying to sign through the fence, and at one point, somebody took off their own prosthetic leg, and you know passed it over the fence for us to sign, and we didn't see it happening. All of a sudden, we just saw this leg come into view, and we didn't know where it came from. We saw this guy on the other side, just, you know, his friends were propping him up while we signed it. And then we signed the leg and passed it over. And as we we're passing it over, some other guy came and stole it and ran off with this guy's leg. I remember one time it was, you know, warp tours out in the summer. I remember it was just hundred degrees and it was like a dust bowl. I don't know where we were at, maybe somewhere out West in the desert, like Arizona or something. I mean, I'm just super dusty. And all of a sudden I see this, projectile coming towards me and I kind of turn to the right and it, it hits me in the shoulder and it falls on the on the stage and I look down and it's a prosthetic leg with a converse shoe hanging off of it and I'm like what the frig I'm like that's not a prop that's someone that lost their damn leg in the pit and all of a sudden I see this dude crawling to the barricade and he comes over and he's hopping on one leg and he goes and, and the, the bouncers, security, help him up on the stage. He comes up and he re-puts his leg on and he goes back out and starts pogoing again. 
As with all massive tours, Warped wasn't without its challenges, especially when its initial punk rock ethos would always be present. Chris remembers one tense but ultimately funny moment when he and his punk friends went to war with the venue. It was another time we were in uh, in St. Louis, and uh, we caught wind that the venue wanted to charge the bands. It was something ridiculous. It was like a 40% charge merchandise rate. They wanted to charge us that day, a venue rate. So we printed up like a thousand flyers and went all over the venue. We're like, these greedy bastards are trying to take your money. If you want uh, less than Jake merchandise, here's where our bus is parked. We'll be out there between 3 and 5 p.m. We'll sell you a T-shirt, and it's not going to be have to be marked up because it's going to take a 40% cut. Our fans got so enraged, they took the flyers off the poles that we stuck them on and took them into... Um, porta potties and lit the porta potties on fire. So this happened to be the only day in Warp Tour existence. This was nine, I think this was 99 or 2001. It was the only day that Kevin Lyman, the owner of Warp Tour, that he ever he had went home the day prior to be with his family. He was going to take a couple days off. He he never never left the tour again after that because he was getting phone calls as he's on you know vacation for a couple of days with his family. There's porta potties on fire. Less than Jake printed up these flyers. Oh my God! There's you know. And at the time he was managing our band, so we were uh, we were a little fearful when Kevin got back, but everything everything turned out okay. By 1998, Warp Tour stretched out to 34 dates across the U.S., giving it considerable pulling power and influence. At the peak of its success, the tour attracted upwards of 700,000 fans per year. This success also meant that a number of rather unexpected artists would sign up for the tour, including Eminem, who made an appearance in 1999. This was just a few months after the release of his breakout album, The Slim Shady LP, so you can imagine the hype that came with that. Lisa Johnson witnessed the pandemonium that surrounded his appearance. I did get to see Eminem on Warped Tour, and that was pretty cool. He was obviously exploding while that was going on, and I remember trying to get a spot where I could, like, get a good photo. And it was, like, the photo pit was just, forget it, it was impossible. It, I, it was literally shut down before I even, like, got to it. It was too dangerous. I don't even know if there were any photographers in the photo pit, if they might have just, like, shut it down. Um, so I, like, found some little corner nook where I could kind of get, like, a couple shots, you know, through the cracks of people. And um, it was crazy. People were... He, he was like the it, the it thing at the it moment when I saw that. And, uh, you know, I don't know at the time if I really knew how big he was going to be. Like, it definitely felt like, oh, this is going to be big. But I, you know, it was Pennywise, Eminem, like I, it was all the same, you know. And then as time went on, it got bigger and bigger. And, you know, that summer was, he was just blowing up. So I think that's like super cool. And it was, it was definitely an awesome thing, but you wouldn't have known how big he was going to be based on like the sweatpants he was wearing. You know, you would never have known that he was going to be so huge, but, uh, okay. Good for him. Less than a decade later in 2008, another unlikely performer joined the Warp Tour bill, Katy Perry. On the heels of the release of her breakout album, One of the Boys and her hit single, I Kissed a Girl, Katy made her first and only appearance on the tour. Well, Katy Perry 
on Warped Tour was interesting because I definitely think there were a lot of people who felt like maybe she didn't belong there. And uh, I think that it was really, it was an extra challenge for her as an artist to try to win people over. And I don't think she really even cared if she did or not. She was just out there trying her hardest to be her best. And I think she learned a lot out there because her singles were like starting to hit as she was out there trying to figure it all out. And, you know, she played the kickoff party. Um, and here, you know, everyone was like, it was all a buzz because, you know, Katy Perry, this hot new artist was going to be playing. And it was, it was a really, really rough sounding set. So that was interesting to watch the, the, uh, you know, like the teeny bopper kind of crowds coming and surging the stages. And you're like, oh, you guys are going to get hurt when every time I die, I come out. <laughs> While Lisa watched Katy Perry develop as a performer during her time on the Warp Tour, Kevin also has fond memories of the pop star's involvement. People didn't realize how hard she was working. She was every morning at 6 a.m. doing radio and TV, but always did her set and then sit with sign autographs. But I go, why she's laziest? And they go, well, she never comes to parties at night. So I go, Katie, you're the laziest person. She's like, what the hell is that? I go, Katie, she goes, give me a bottle of Patron. I'll be there tonight. Despite its continued success and influence, the Vans Warped Tour was not immune to shifts both in music and culture at large. The advent of social media in the early 2000s, combined with the addition of artists that were not necessarily aligned with the tour's punk values, proved to be a toxic combination. All of a sudden, music fans had a platform where they could share their thoughts, both positive and negative. The festival's evolution was also questioned by those who had attended those early years. As a musician who played on the tour nearly from the start, Chris especially felt the shift in the early 2000s. For us, we saw the changes, and, and every year it seemed after 99 or 2001, Kevin was getting an earful from people because people wanted it to be the same thing. And when anything is the same thing and it doesn't grow, it becomes stale. There's only so many uh, seasons that Friends was on or Seinfeld was on. At some point, it's like, okay, we've, we've seen this, you know, and it's not a disrespect to those shows or anything. It's just things have to evolve in order to... Uh, to stay fresh and stay, I don't know if the word's relevant or what the word is, but, you know, Kevin started not just bringing out punk and ska bands. He started, you know, and he started to bring out different types of music, the early, maybe you want to call it the early 2000s emo scene or whatever. And, uh, you know, for us, it, it didn't affect us in terms of like, oh God, we don't belong on this tour anymore. I mean, we were, we were still less than Jake. We, we weren't all of a sudden going to grow, grow our bangs out and uh, put on, on, on guy liner, eyeliner and uh, skinny jeans and, and try to be those bands. By that point, we were already, I was in my late 20s. We had been a band over 10 years. We were just trudging on doing, doing what we do. By the late 2000s, uh, early 2010s, uh, the tour, in, in terms of where it started from band-wise, was um, unrecognizable in the sense of we were the only, a couple years, maybe the only punk ska band on the, on the whole tour for a couple years running near the end. Um, and that's just the, the way it ended up. But the sentiment of the tour, the there's the main stage, there's this stage. It, it, it was still the same vibe as it was in 97. So whenever I would hear people kind of whining and complaining about the tour, like to me, to me, the tour never changed. It just got bigger and it, and it evolved. Kevin agrees that the evolution of the Vans Warp Tour came with its own challenges. Ultimately, when I started to think about winding this down after 25 years, 
it was, I think we've lost the sense of community. It took a community to make Warp Tour go. Some of that maybe was self-inflicted because during social media change, and I've learned a lot, how, but it was changing so quickly. I thought you addressed the fans that complain on Twitter. <laughs> I was addressing everyone and trying to keep that conversation going, but you realize that you can't really negotiate, debate, or educate through social media. But I thought you, because in punk rock, my tent, I was on every warp tour. I sat under tent one. People could come discuss with me. And then the bands changed where they, but I realized I was getting older too. My peers weren't touring with me anymore. The Bad Religions and those bands were my friends. They could come and have a conversation. These younger bands looked at me either as a mentor or a disciplinarian. I didn't have that relationship with maybe the artist. That, so all of a sudden I'd wake up and they would voice their opinion about something on the tour that they're being on without coming and talking to me first. So in 2017 was one of those years. You're gonna have these kind of flows, but man, everything that could go wrong went wrong. There were some controversies with artists that weren't necessarily on the tour at the time. But I, as I guess the unwilling leader or of, the, of the scene at that point, or looked to as the mentor that I would be, or the disciplinarian, was you know, a lot of people came to me with these problems. And I stepped up and tried to figure them out, sometimes in a community setting, because I thought the community would want to help figure this out instead of attacking their own community. Probably now I, I would handle that a little differently. I would totally handle those kind of things a little differently. And then I started seeing the bands, and this is what kind of pissed me off. Because in 1997, 98, Pennywise couldn't judge a band until they met him in a parking lot. So you'd be in line with catering because of our community setting with no dressing rooms, this community set. You'd meet the people in Blackout. They're, pre they're musicians too. Then I watched, started watching this community tear itself apart from within. That this band would, not even meeting these people, they just didn't agree with their music or the way they looked, bashing that band online or this line. And then people would come up to me and say, well, I don't want to be on Warp Tour because uh, Attila's on Warp Tour. And I'd say, have you met the guys in Attila? No, I just don't like their, you know, suck my fuck, what the fuck is that? I'm going, look, we're not here to judge each other's music. The fans will judge each other's music. Attila brings people. Do I personally run around singing suck my fuck? No, do, I, do you? No. But you know what, they're fans, somehow they're gravity, they're good musicians and they're not bad people. I've never seen him do a bad thing to someone. Some of the stuff he says, maybe is just more stupidity. <laughs> but if you sit with him, he has a reason because he says some things and it may not agree with your reason, but that was the, you could have diverse opinions. And we're only a microcosm of society now because we can't accept diverse opinions in the same room. The bands I thought would have been fantastic for this would have been bands like Balance and Composure, Law Dispute, Touche Amour, um, I love those bands. I think they're great musical bands, but their little attitudes of like their little community, they don't want to break out of that little community. I said, one will eventually hurt your career because you're going to be playing for the same people all the time. You're going to not, you need to come and sing right next to a band like Attila because their fans are going to grow out of whatever they're saying and maybe start listening to your lyrics and gravitate to you and you have to build your community. And, you know, there'd be bands and, you know, and I would sit there and I'd be like, Modern Baseball, I think could have been one of the most massive bands out there. But they, they get caught up in their own bullshit. They, 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 no one's too precious to break out of your own shell. And I felt they were, and I'd watch their careers from, and I'd, every year I'd send offers, just, oh, we don't want to tour with those bands. We don't want to be a, some, I don't want to be the, a Warped-esque band. And I'd be like, dude, Warped-esque bands, bad religion, day to remember. Some of the biggest bands of our whole scene, built Paramore, you know? 
someone like Bibi Rexa cut her teeth on Warped Tour as a live act. Katy Perry was a Warped Desk band for a moment, but she cut her teeth live on that and built a fan base. So I just couldn't really, and it got very frustrating around 2017. I was, I was challenged by maybe the, the, the fractured fan base, the fractured band base, the sense of community and what I got involved in this for and what brought me into punk rock that I said, you know, if it's changed, it's maybe time for me to wind this thing down. 2017, no matter who I put up, it was like, F that band, F that band, where's this band? It was just like, ow, oh, what happened to the acceptance of music and, and that love of music? And I realized we had pushed the audience down to a young level. Warp got known as a young, but I did that because I wanted young people to get exposed to this music, to maybe support independent music for a longer time. I always said, if we could get them turned onto our music, if someone's, and I don't know disrespect to a Taylor Swift tour, but you know what, if you're gonna go into pop, why don't I introduce you to punk rock at 13? Because you know what? At 13, you're gonna be passionate. You're gonna buy, still buy music. You're gonna buy t-shirts. You're gonna support that. Because I felt we would have that audience from 13 to 19 at that point. And then at 19, you might go to college and you get into EDM because you wanna go drop molly in the desert at EDC. So I'd have them for, if I could get them at a show younger, and then I made a really bad mistake. Um, the world of YouTubers started coming up. And people were telling me about YouTube. You need to get some YouTubers. And I brought YouTubers on the road with me. And thinking that maybe we could bridge some of these people to be the next journalists, using their audience to promote music and things. So I made a mistake with that. There's, I could talk about that for days, that mistake. But by bringing YouTubers, going with a super young audience that I thought was gonna help the indie music scene, I maybe, Warped Tour was not really, it, it, times had changed quite a bit. On November 15th, 2017, Kevin issued a statement announcing that the following year's Warp Tour would mark the end of the event as a touring festival. He thanked the 1,700 bands that played during its 23-year run. Reflecting on that announcement today, he also reveals the personal reasons behind his decision. Everyone looked at me as, he stopped Warp Tour, and in our business, we always look at it as money. First thing, they go to money. He's not making any, enough money, or it's not, and that wasn't it. That was not it. Warp Tour was not feeding my soul and my heart as much as, it, as you put in. Because Warp Tour was 90% about the community and 10% about making money. It really was. And anyone can, some people I'm sure will say bullshit, but you know, it is true. I built that because I wanted to keep people coming to see live music. I wanted to build a community. I wanted this to be just, and I'd lost that. Spirit was taken out of me for multiple reasons. In 2019, Kevin celebrated the tour's 25th anniversary by staging three Warp Tour shows in Cleveland, Ohio, Atlantic City, New Jersey, and Mountain View, California. The lineup included Blink-182, Bad Religion, The Offspring, Quicksand, Taking Back Sunday, and Less Than Jake. It was, perhaps, an openly nostalgic lineup designed to celebrate the tour's legacy and its impact on fans and artists alike. What's really fun about um, a Warp Tour for me and having been going for so many years is there'll be um, kids that you meet like early on and then over time they have turned into grown-ups. And what's really cool is to be able to somehow like touch their lives and have um, inspired them, you know, to pursue their goals or pick up a camera and you know, maybe be a rock photographer because they're like, well, I saw you doing it. And that was like really cool. Kevin is also conscious of the question of legacy. 
now an associate adjunct professor at USC's Thornton School of Music. Here are his final thoughts, looking back on what the tour achieved. When we were in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of the things I insisted on that we had a memoriam wall for people who passed away on this tour. And uh, there was a young, it's just a crazy story. When I went to USC to teach, I get an internal memo that says, I'd love to talk to you, Kevin. I'd love to you know, meet you. I went to the office and this woman said, um, I want to give you this t-shirt. And it was a, a young man's crowd surfing. And uh, I said, wow, that's really cool. And she said, that was, that was my son. And I said, really? Yeah. And I said, so he, she said, he turned up on a random photo on your website, just the sheer joy of being on a crowd surfing. But he was hit by lightning and killed. And I was like, I still like now get goosebumps like crazy because I'm now teaching at US. Randomly meet this woman. She says, you with Warp Tour, he was struggling, struggling. So he found a home there. He found a home. He started doing better in school. He started playing music. He started skating. He started being an outdoors person. And one kid was hit by lightning in a storm in Venice Beach years ago. We don't have lightning storms in California that kill people. And he was hit by lightning. And one of the things that I tell people, and, and I've told it, is the reason I stopped Warp Tour, I got tired of running towards the lightning. Because I always, it was my job to run towards the lightning in a storm or a problem or issues. It was always my job to run towards the lightning. And it stuck with me. Like I tear up, and I'm like in, I'm in that room at the Rock Hall, and I read that, and there's the, it was the press day. And then all of a sudden I started reading all the names of all these people I've come in contact through through this tour who are no longer with us. And I broke down. I was just like, let all those little boxes go in your head. And it was pretty, it was like, I'm not a hugely emotional person. Um, I can't be because you always have to run on medium when you're doing what I do. And it came out, it was tough, but it was just a spark. So. You know, how many sparks did we do? And I, and I get that when I, in, I love when I'm in corporate boardrooms. That's the warp moments. It's like corporate boardrooms. And almost every time I'm talking to a group of like corporate people, there's going to be, before we get started, I'd like to tell you a story about my first time at Warp Tour. My mom drove me to the car. I was so excited about meeting the used, you know? And then I, or it starts with, a lot of them go, I snuck into the Warp Tour. I'm like, did anyone pay to go to the Warp Tour? Or, you know, we had some government people out with my opioid thing in the last couple of years when I was working with Fenn and putting out that opioid messaging. They came and visited from, you know, attorney general offices and governor's offices, and they'd chum, come with long sleeves. And immediately they got there, they started rolling up their sleeves and they've got full sleeves. And they're like, started to tell me their punk rock stories and, and why they got into government to try to change it a little bit. Um, and then they asked what your legacy is going to be. And I go, when I walk backstage at almost every festival or event, and the people running it now, and many of them are women. And then, you know, there's been some say that we didn't have enough women bands on Warped Tour. We always had the best women, the best female bands on Warped Tour that wanted to be there. It's not that I didn't ask some of them. Um, some of them didn't want to come. A lot of them did come. We, but when I walk backstage and the festivals in this country are being run by people who cut their teeth on Warped Tour. This episode of Kerrang's Inside Track was narrated, written, and produced by me, Kat Jones. It was directed and executive produced by Ethan Fixell, with additional production by Phil Alexander. It was edited and mixed by Kieran Kay at Full English Post in Brooklyn, New York. 
All music was written and composed by Ben Hutcherson, and our logo was designed by Matt Deichsel. Special thanks to Mark James, Gary Strack, Steph Mursky, and Kat Cody. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Inside Track wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit Kerrang.com for more information on your favorite Warped Tour bands. Warped Tour.